Tech Talk with Matthew Dickerson. Matthew Dickerson. Sit back and relax. It's time to talk technology. Hello, Masters of the Universe, and welcome to another sterling episode of Tech Talk with Matthew Dickerson. Now, let me draw you a mental picture of the week that was. You see, at the time of recording, the glorious six-day cycling event and fundraiser for the Macquarie Homestay, that is the Tour de Oroch, just had its triumphant finish, and Matthew, our illustrious guru and marathon cyclist, joins us now from the comfiest chair in the building, ably supported by a super soft cushion. Matt, is it fair to say that the only thing that's been on your mind for the past week is bitumen and the bike in front's tyre? No, no. The main thing that's been on my mind has been my bottom, James. Yeah, right. Okay. (laughs) You are quite quick about the luxurious. that super soft cushion. That's exactly (laughs) right. Sitting on a very small patch. I don't know why we haven't been able to get that better. All the cycling (laughs) events all around the world, all the people. We we sell as many new bicycles in Australia as we do new cars each year. About a million. Yeah, it's quite fascinating. But still, we have this little tiny surface area, this little tiny contact patch yeah. for somewhere to sit. Surely we can do better than that. <laughs> <laughs> well, I don't know. You've tried a broader um, old-style bicycle seat, I guess, but um, they're probably not very, uh, well, I don't want to say race-conducive, but at least long-distance conducive. Probably not. And we did see one guy as we went around the 1,140 kilometres that we did in a recumbent bicycle, which is like a lounge chair, oh, very yeah, low yeah, to yeah. the ground. And apparently they're quite efficient because you are low to the ground, less air resistance, and your feet out in front of you, and everyone looked at that seat and went, oh, wow, I like the <laughs> idea of that. <laughs> but it did get me thinking, as you go along, 45 hours we spent cycling in the last week. Wow. So it's a fair bit of time to saddle, a fair bit of time to talk. And we did actually discuss some of the technology that's occurring in the whole bicycle domain. Now, technology's mm. been around bikes forever. If you go way back to the penny farthing, the reason they had the huge front wheel on a penny farthing is because you didn't have gearing. Mm. So rather than your feet spinning at a million miles an hour while you're trying to pedal, the way they got some sort of ratio or gearing ratio was they just built a big front wheel so you mm. didn't have to pedal too quickly. They also needed um, some really interesting topic matter for uh, Mulga Bill as well. Imagine Mulga Bill riding just a penny farthing down there. <laughs> so then when they introduced what was known as the safety cycle, it was actually a bicycle with normal sized wheels that you could sit on a little bit easier and then gearing. So gearing, having a sprocket, a chain, having Mm -hmm. the ability to have those ratios. So we've had technology for a long time. The derailleur came along, of course, so you can actually change gears, a whole range of technology. But I did actually explore a little bit as we rode along some of the technology that's occurring now and in the future with bicycles. All the things that have occurred in the past, forget about those, all the carbon fibre frames, all the different gearing The few things that really struck me that are changing in bicycles is about shifting. We've got electronic shifting now, and that's certainly changed quite dramatically. Rather than a good old-fashioned cable, and you push a lever and it drags a little wheel over or a derailleur over or drags a guide over to change, that's all changing now with electronic shifting. And you go, big deal, electronic shifting. It's actually quite incredible how much of a difference it makes to your fatigue level when you're electronic shifting rather than having to go through dragging a cable. It sounds like nothing, but... Yeah, yeah just over, shifting a, a gear. But yeah, yeah, big yeah, deal. Right. But over 45 hours when you've got your hands yeah. moving those, but it's also quicker to shift. It's also better for the chain because it's not taking so long to shift across. So there are some advantages to electronic shifting apart from just the wear out of your hands, if you like. So that's all fine. But you also got that flexibility about where you put shifters. Now, it hasn't happened a lot yet, but you've got this ability to put a button somewhere rather than having in a road bike you've got your typical brakes are used as your shifters as well or on a mountain bike it might be a, a 
lever that you're using your thumb on, once you get to electronic shifting, use buttons. Yeah. What the heck? You don't need to have any lever to push. So you've got that flexibility to where you put it. You've also got electronics in your suspension systems. And this is more mountain bikes now. So you'll get the ability to lock out your suspension system. You've got that big climb ahead of you. You don't have to pull a lever or twist a button. You just hit a button mm. and that electronically change your suspension control. And you might even get so far as it hasn't happened yet, but there's some talk about electronic brakes at the moment you've got brakes that have got cables some brakes are hydraulic but mm-hmm. then getting electronic brakes as well so getting a whole range of different wow. things electronic on your bike this is amazing yeah. and all for under thirty thousand dollars <laughs> just about right okay yeah, he's right there i did do a quick sum there were 24 riders in this particular event quick sum of the bikes on there probably 350 grand worth of bikes oh, as we rode right. along there so okay. we had a few cars as support vehicles the cars were worth Less, Less than, than the actual bikes, bikes on there. Yeah. But you've got things like you'll get electronic keys then. So when you get off your bike and go and get your coffee at the end of a ride, which is compulsory, then you'll be able to just electronically lock your bike. So you'll lock out things like the brakes. You'll lock out things like the gear shifters. So that if someone comes to steal your bike, unless they've got the key in inverted <laughs> commas, which is probably going to be your smartphone, then they can't get on the bike and ride away. So you've got some things happening there. Uh, we've talked before about tubeless tyres, so a bit of technology happening there in tubeless tyres. So again, you won't have to worry about punctures. Mm. Uh, you, you do get tubeless tyres now, but totally tubeless, totally airless. In other words, no pressurised air. We've talked about the smart rover that NASA's got that doesn't have any pressurised air because you've got that rover up on Mars so mm. you don't want to be able to have to go whoops there's a puncher we'll just pull into a friendly bike store and get that fixed up so that's something that's happening with bikes as well but the big one I think James is the 3D printed saddle yeah. this is huge <laughs> technology. technology you actually of course. you go in and sit down on a moulding device, a bit like when you get a tooth, a, a mouth guard moulded to your teeth, <laughs> you'll sit down on something that moulds to the shape of your bottom, and then an hour later, it'll 3D print a saddle that's wow. perfectly suited to your <laughs> bottom. I want that the next time before I go on a long and ride. And if anyone steals your bike, then it's just not going to be comfortable enough. It'd be horrible. So uh. <laughs> I'll give it straight back to you. So a lot of technology happening there in bikes, as with every part of society. But you think the bike's pretty simple, a couple of wheels, handlebars, Chain, gears, that's it. But no, there is an incredible amount of technology on a bike these days. Big game technology. Well, as my adolescent son would say, there's a banging playlist up for us today on Tech Talk. Matt, you're going to step us through a new strategy for insomniacs to regain some normal sleepy time. There's some good news for um, people who are looking to buy solar panels, as as we can now get dust-repellent solar panels. Um, Some bad news for people who've been welching off their mates and using their surplus Netflix plug. Let me say that again, Netflix profiles. Get my tongue around that. The long and the short is get the gigs up, folks. But let's start off with one from the novelty box. We reference the Jetsons every now and then on this show, and there's some good news for devotees. You can get nice and comfy in your space-age chairs with a super soft cushions because, ladies and gentlemen, the next stage of the future has arrived. Hamburgers can now be made completely by robotics. We've nearly ticked all the boxes now, Matt. We just need travelators installed everywhere. Yeah, that'd be good, wouldn't it? And we haven't quite got the flying car from the Jetsons yet, but we have talked about it we've a little got, bit. We've got some flying cars, but they're not quite Jetsons flying cars. And that's right. But this is more important, a vending machine for your hamburger. Yeah, How does that right. sound? So they now, can pop up that's going to turn anywhere. some stomachs out there, but it's still food, right? And it's still... It's still a beef patty. Yep. It's still cheese-ish. Yeah, right, okay. <laughs> it's still a bun in there. So it you is. go along to a vending machine, you put your money in. These are in American dollars, $7. You pay your $7 for the vending machine. 
Seven minutes later, which isn't too bad, you're probably going to a hamburger place, it's probably going to be slower than that. Yeah. Seven minutes later, you get your nice robo burger. So it actually cooks it. You can't see it happening. I actually wish it had some glass you could watch it, but it all happens <laughs> behind the scenes. There's a little graphic image to tell you what's happening. And so the hamburger in a frozen compartment of the vending machine comes out of that. The patty gets cooked. The bun is taken out and it's just lightly roasted so it's just a little bit crispy yeah. some cheese gets squirted <laughs> on top you can have some sauces on there if you like you can choose that obviously yes or no there but that's about it no tomato no lettuce no other bits and pieces no beetroot i'm a big fan of beetroot in my hamburger <laughs> a bit but sloppy for the vending machine right, yeah okay. i'm not sure they'd quite get that but who knows maybe in the future stain everywhere that's right but it's the the device has the ability to hold about 50 meat patties so Essentially, when someone wants to restock it, it's not like someone's got to come along and put in 50 more meat patties. There's just a complete unit that gets taken out and a new unit put in, and that's ready for another 50 beef patties. So it's got the beef patties, it's got the buns, it's got the cheese, everything that's needed for those next 50 to be used. So as long as someone can restock it, however long it takes to sell 50, I don't know whether it takes a few hours, a few days, a few weeks, whatever length of time that takes to refill, obviously the makers of the vending machine have the ability remotely to tell whoever's restocking it that it's now time to restock, so they need to come around and restock it. But that's it. And I actually read an article from one particular person who tried one of the beef patties, one of the robot burgers, and they said, look, as far as a fast food burger was concerned, it was fine. Let's face it, it's just a beef patty cooked. It's a bun, it's yep. some cheese. That's right. So it's probably not much difference whether you do that in a hamburger place or you do that at a fast food outlet or you do that from a vending machine. But essentially, it's doing it there in a really easy format. So I don't know that I'd choose to go to a vending machine and get one. <laughs> but if I was at an airport, for example. But if that was all that was available. Yeah. Yeah, and surely there'd be an app or something that identifies that there's a vending machine somewhere nearby and you could be like ordering your hamburger on your way there. It's a two or three minute walk to the vending machine, bang, yep. and you've only got. I'd a say you're one step ahead of them. I think that's probably exactly what they'll do at the moment. They're probably not quite there yet, but I think that's exactly what you'll do. So you would walk up to it. Hey, that's mine. Get away from yeah. there. <laughs> <laughs> I ordered that a couple <laughs> of minutes ago. <laughs> so that uh, sounds fascinating. But the beauty of this, I suppose, is that that vending machine can be picked up and dropped anywhere, mm. as long as it had the ability for people to restock it then you can put food into a whole range of places, whether it be airports, as I mentioned, or whether it be various locations that they just need some food. It could be, for example, a construction site that needs some food nearby in mm. terms of there's not a whole range of food outlets near a construction site. Or it might be some flooding or a bushfire or some disaster that occurs and they need somewhere to bring in some food quickly and have it ready for people. They just bring in vending machines, drop them in there. And again, as long as they get vending machine and power, it does everything else itself. You don't need mm. to bring water in. It's actually got water inside it. So when it cooks, it then actually does a squirt spray of the cooking plate that's inside there. Yeah, okay. So Self-cleaning. It's self-cleaning. So it's got everything contained within it just needs power obviously it's power to keep the beef patties frozen but it needs power to do the whole process and that's it so it sounds like an interesting step forward maybe a long way to go before you get a healthy version of that but this is step yeah, number one I can't say my taste buds are like uh, <laughs> really uh, firing right now i'm not watering at the mouth but anyway yeah you just can't get 
fries and a cola with it. That's the, <laughs> the only option. No, but uh, surely, surely that's a vending machine next door. Well, that's right. You might have another one there for your for your various <laughs> soft drinks and uh, fries. That'd be. You wouldn't imagine a vending machine with hot fat oh, sitting in there. I tell you, the uh, the college, the residential college that I stayed at at university, um, we used to get warmed Smith's crisps for warmed. our fish and chips. Yeah, so they would just open a packet of chips and chuck that in the oven, and that's. <laughs> That was our version of fries. Yeah, right. <laughs> well, <laughs> they can do that, that pretty easily. Hardly think. caught on blur. Right. <laughs> no, not, not at all. <laughs> We've talked about how ideas have been running dry a little bit lately at Apple HQ. Innovation's a tricky wheel to keep rolling for decades on end in a super competitive marketplace in particular. So how do you keep sales rolling and the cash registers ringing in 2022 when you've run out of gadgets to introduce? Matt, I guess the answer is that you just turn your hardware into a subscription service. It is a real problem for Apple, isn't it? A trillion dollar company, where am I going to get my next dollar from? Mm. All these issues are going <laughs> yeah, through right. the minds uh, of the planning. Going broke. <laughs> that's right. I've only got a trillion dollars. <laughs> that's right. So the whole concept from Apple seems to be how do we get all of our bits and pieces on a monthly basis rather than the old model of things where you just buy it once mm. off and then rely on enough innovation to encourage people to buy the next one. And we talk about built-in obsolescence and a whole range of products, whether it be washing machines, whether it be refrigerators, cars. You want people to get to the stage where it wears out or it's not current or there's new innovations there. But maybe, and we've talked about a little bit, maybe Apple's losing the edge or they're getting to the point where what else do we do? What else can we yeah, come up what with? What else can you do? Yeah, the, the the pressure on innovators is enormous. It is, and we talked about last time the fact that Apple had their big major launch, and one of the major launches was a new color, and that's <laughs> what I thought. Maybe they're just scraping the bottom of the barrel. So they've already got Apple Music, Apple TV Plus, Apple News Plus, Apple Fitness Plus, Apple Arcade. They're all things that have got a monthly subscription service. So they're kind of looking like they're going that way, but their hardware is still a major part of their business. So iPads, iPhones, Apple Macs, people are buying those, paying money Mm. for those, and then obviously down the track they're buying another one. Now, the telephone carriers around the world have said it's too expensive to go and pay a couple of thousand dollars for a new phone. So they've got that concept where you buy as part of your plan a monthly service. So Apple have said, hold on, if those carriers can do it, Maybe we can do it as well. Mm. So they're about to introduce, probably maybe with the release at the end of this year with their new iPhones that come out, maybe next year, but probably more likely this year, when the new models come out, they'll say, don't pay a couple of thousand dollars or whatever it might be for that new phone you want. It's just going to be X dollars per month. Now, I imagine it will be, take the price of the phone, divide it by 24 and say, that's how much you're going to pay over two years. But I think it'll be a bit cleverer than that. I think they'll just say, pay this amount, which might be approximately that same amount that I just mentioned, take the amount divided by 24, pay this amount, but then each year hand back your old one in good condition and take the new one. So it takes a bit of the pressure off innovation because mm. you just say, oh, well, I'm going to get a new phone next year because Apple's going to give me one as part of my monthly subscription. But then Apple says, well, we've got these people locked in. We don't have to entice them into a new phone. They're going to get the new phone anyway. And I think that's part of the real attraction for Apple. Yes, they get a monthly subscription, so they can rely on that ongoing basis. But they also, I think, just take that little bit of pressure off because they don't have to entice you. You're going to get it anyway. So as long as it does something new, 
then so be it. So the pressure's off the innovators at Apple now. They can just sit around in their office eating donuts and putting their feet up on the desk. I think so. And that, to me, that's a bit of a downside, obviously. <laughs> a huge risk for the whole marketplace if suddenly the pressure is off. Because we want the pressure on. Yeah. We want other companies nipping at the heels of the major innovators for them to be under pressure to make sure they keep improving, keep making their products better. But this is where it's going and so many people now like the idea of rather than forking out a big chunk of money, yeah. just paying some sort of monthly amount, well, some sort of fee. It's like a wheel that just keeps rolling and once you're comfortable with it, you know, to start off with, yeah. you know, you'll be comfortable with it on and on and on. From a business perspective, it takes away that lumpy income as well. Apple would have a large income bump when their new phones come out typically in September, leading towards Christmas. You can imagine it would be a larger increase there. And then obviously that drops down. And especially around July and August, you can mm. imagine their income drops from a phone perspective anyway, drops dramatically because who's going to buy the current phone in August knowing that next month the new model is going to come out? So it just gives you that uneven income stream. Don't get me wrong here, I'm not putting any violins out and saying to play them for Apple, <laughs> saying that, oh no, our income dropped a little bit in August. But this is where I think we'll see a lot of companies, a lot of organisations going, let's face it, how does everyone buy their house? They don't go and fork out all the money for a new house, they fork out all the money for a monthly payment to their bank, for the yeah. bank to buy them a new house. So we kind of get it with cars and houses, why don't we get it with everything? So we've just got a monthly budget, out of that monthly budget, there's all the payments coming in, including my new phone that I have to have because, let's face it, you've got to have the latest phone, James. Yeah, it seems to be the thing these days. No secrets that Australia has been quite backward in advancing into the EV market, but playing catch-up may become even harder now. As the rest of the world progresses into a less and less fossil fuel future, there are ramifications for not keeping up with the international Joneses. Because at the e as the EV market evolves, so does the infrastructure that goes with it. Matt, what are the costs for Australia not powering up into EVs? Well, I think it's one of those things that will be a self-fulfilling prophecy, James. Unless we actually get our act together, we will be a dumping ground for a lot of these manufacturers around the world who say, oh, we've got that whole tooling process ready for that car that's been out for many years. For the new model, yeah. Well, or, or more the old model. Awesome. We've already put all that tooling process in place. And we did our R&D and our lifetime calculations on that particular model based around X number of sales. We haven't got there yet. We'll send those cars to Australia because they're still buying those old internal combustion engines. That'll be fine. And there was an interesting interview with a gentleman who's one of the few Australians at General Motors in America. And he basically said exactly this, that unless Australia starts to get its act together, then you'll see the selection of cars in Australia will basically be less environmentally friendly models. They'll be older models. There'll be less innovation that we'll see in Australia because the electric vehicles, all the innovation, all the new models, all the exciting stuff that we sometimes talk about will be going to countries where they've obviously said, we want to do that. And if you just look at charging stations, so Australia physically in terms of its size is similar to the US. Obviously, our population is dramatically less. But we've got at the moment, if you really scratch at the surface and get down to the, the every charging station you possibly count, about 3,000 charging stations. Now, of those 3,000, some of those are Tesla only, so you almost can't count those, but they're there mm. still, but you have to own a Tesla to use them. But to give you an idea, just in California, there's 70,000 charging stations. Yeah, so one little California. old state in America has got 70,000, we've got 3,000. Wow. And it does make a difference to where people can drive. We 
talked about Tour de Rock a moment ago, and I know a couple of the people, the partners, the people that were on the ride wanted to go and visit them along the way, and a couple of them had the electric vehicle option, and so they had to do a bit of research to make sure they could find an EV charging station in some of those towns, and they did. Luckily, in some of those remote locations, there were some charging stations, but they were put in by private companies rather than being put in by the government. So they could drive out those charging stations or drive out to those towns, see their loved one and wish them off on the ride, and then they could plug into the charging infrastructure that was there. But you had to think about it, and you shouldn't have to get to that point where you've got mm. to think about it. So that's certainly a big thing. That, that's been a big argument, though, for the for the naysayers. They're saying, oh, well, there's not enough charging stations out there, so why would I go electric? But... Um, there was a time uh, over 100 years ago where we didn't have that many fuel stations. So why would you bother going with a petrol car to, uh, instead of a horse? You could take your horse and you could get some feed along the way on the side of the road, side of the dirt roads there. So why would you have to load up your jerry cans and yep. have your spare tyres because you're going to get punches along the way when you've got that horse that can just take care of itself. So you're spot on, but it is a bit of the chicken and the egg, isn't it? If we have more charging stations, that should bring more electric cars. People are saying... I don't want to build charging stations because there's not enough electric cars. So mm. let's get more electric cars and then more charging stations will come. What I have been noticing lately is NRMA, I think, have been doing a fantastic job in New South Wales in building a private charging network. And in the early days of NRMA, when I say early days, a couple of years ago, they were putting in single charging stations. Now the new ones that I've seen have started to be dual charging stations. And the other change that I've noticed with those is NRMA said they're all free, for the time being, and the original charges, nowhere on there is there any ability to pay if that comes in someday. The new charging stations, which again have got two separate charging stations, have got some functionality built into them where you can pay to use them. They're not implementing that yet, but obviously down the track, that's where you'll go. And if you're a member of NRMA, you'd probably be saying, well, why are you putting these charging stations in? Surely you want to make sure the company keeps making money, you're investing in all this infrastructure. So part of the problem is, we did last year, we've talked about it before, 1.95% of all our new car sales were electric. In America, it was only up to 5%, but 5% is a much larger number in terms of the total quantity. We've talked about Norway, 92%, but even China, 10% in China were EVs. So we're no, way behind no. the, the rest of the world, and we often feel like we're a little mini America here in Australia. But even at 5% in America, we're not really catching up to America. Everyone points to long distances. Everyone points to us being a bit different. But really, we're not. Most people just drive to work, drop kids off at school, do some shopping. Most people don't drive that far in their average day. Sounding like a bunch of excuses. <laughs> That's exactly right. The big change I think that would happen, or the big change that the government could make, which would drive some sales, would be some EV incentives. Now, we know that New South Wales and Victoria have got a $3,000 incentive. That's only fairly recent, but that's only if the cars blow a certain price, and that excludes a lot of the market. Queensland's just done the same thing. They've got a $3,000 tax credit on an EV purchase, so that's similar to New South Wales and Victoria, but it's nothing like what you see overseas. I think in California, it's about $7,500. Mm. In some places overseas, you see $10,000 incentives. So it is a way to really drive that market. I think once you get the cars, you'll get that charging infrastructure and suddenly it makes it a whole lot better. But I spoke to one of the people on Tour de Rock who drove out to one of the locations and then drove back again to see one of their loved ones. If they did it in a diesel car, for example, the price of diesel at the moment, it would have cost about $160 to go and do that same trip. 
they did it in an electric car and they used the public charging infrastructure, which was free. So they did that same trip for zero dollars. So it's a fairly big difference. Yeah. <laughs> now, the electric car is dearer, of course, I accept that. But it doesn't take many of those sort of trips or it doesn't take many more increases in petrol and diesel prices before you start to say, wow, the difference is pretty obvious. Yeah. I was talking to an old soul a couple of years ago about solar panels and he was quite resistant, looking for any and every excuse not to lean into this technology. One of the problems that he put forward, and I had no simple solution for it, I'll admit, was that if they're not clean, then their efficiency drops. So that made it essentially one more thing around the house to keep the dust off. And no one, nowhere does dust better than Australia. If only we had dust-repellent solar panels, Matt. <laughs> Dream on, James. What a concept that would be. <laughs> Some of the really big solar parks, the large-scale solar parks, are out in desert areas. Kind of makes sense. Yeah. Seems like there's a bit of sun in desert areas. Doesn't seem like there's a lot of other things to get in the road, trees, buildings, shadowing, and that sort of thing. And usually it's not being used for much else. So mm. why not turn that desert landscape into a great power generator? Why not? The land's often quite flat as well. So there's a whole range of advantages. But deserts tend to have just a touch of dust. <laughs> so that creates a little bit of a problem. Now, they do do cleaning at the moment. And you can actually reduce your efficiency quite dramatically. Sometimes if you get a really dusty environment, you could reduce the efficiency by up to 30%. And that's that's fairly extreme. I don't think yeah. normally it would get that much. But if you had a really dusty environment and that dust settled on your solar panels, 30% reduction in power generation. Well, so that's my, significant. My old friend uh, there, that would have been quite significant. Yeah. And that's enough reason for them to say, no, I don't. <laughs> yeah, I'll never right. get them. Now, what they do in those large-scale ones so that they don't have the loss is they use water to clean them. If you use a physical device, just a scrubbing device, then you end up scratching the surface. Again, reduces your efficiency of the solar panels. So they use water. You don't want water that's got some mineral components in there because that will build up. That'll leave deposits, yeah. Reduce your efficiency again. So they need, need nice, clean, demineralized water to clean those solar panels. And you can imagine... And in a desert, that's one of the things you typically don't have is a mm. bunch of water that you can use. So bringing that water in can account sometimes for up to about 10% of the overall cost of maintaining a solar park is in the water you need. Now you might say, well, if you bring water in, maybe you could use that water, recycle that water, have some potential crops grown by recycling that water and using it, a whole range of things. But that adds a whole bunch of complexity to a solar park. So I don't think many people go and do all that. They just say, well, we're going to have to use water. That's part of the expense of running it. Away we go. Until someone says, you know what? Maybe there's a different way to approach this. And one of the things that they looked at was what NASA does. Now, NASA has been using electrostatics to remove dust from their solar panels on things they put up in space, Mars rovers, we're talking about Mars rovers a bit today, but Mars rovers, you can imagine you don't have easy access to water on Mars, you just go and <laughs> clean solar panels, and you want them clean, because if they stop getting enough they power... Working, then the thing stops working. Exactly right, and you just haven't got your friendly technician to run around and clean the solar panels on the Mars rover. So they've been using electrostatics to remove that dust, but they're extremely dry conditions when you use that on Mars. Now, you might think the desert's fairly dry, but the desert air is not 0% humidity. Mm. You might get 20 30 40% humidity in the desert, 
especially overnight, you might get a bit of humidity. So that's exactly what MIT's been working on, is coming up with a way of electrostatically charging the dust across these panels, and they actually run a device across the top of these panels that, and it sounds ridiculous, they're not a metallic component. So how are we going to get some sort of charge into these dust particles? But if there's enough humidity, it's actually using the water that's around that dust, the water that's around the air, to actually attract the dust particles to an electrostatically charged component that passes over the top of these panels. So middle of the night, presumably, when there's more moisture in the air, and I saw a video of it working, and it actually just passes a device across the top of these panels, and like a miracle, the dust from the panels gets caught up in this device <laughs> and taken across and then well, presumably... The, the humble electrostatic charge. Yeah, and yeah. then at the end of that, it releases that dust back to the ground. So it obviously turns off the charge and then that dust falls down. And it picked up, what I watched there, it picked up not 100%, but probably 95% of the dust that were on those panels. And again, it moves across, doesn't touch them, there's no scratching of the surface there, and moves across and that dust is gone. So this is a huge breakthrough and it gives us the power, the ability to generate more power. If you start to look at the global scale, if you looked at solar panel losses from dust collection, if you didn't clean them, just with the solar panels we've got now and the dust buildup that we might have in different areas, that accounts for up to $5.5 billion, US dollars, billion dollars, in terms of loss of power generation from dust sitting on solar panels right now. So mm. it's a problem worth solving in terms of economically. So if someone can come up with a solution, then these sort of devices can be done on scale. They can be put on rails that can go across there. Not that expensive to run. And, hey, you need electricity to run these, but you've got a bunch of solar panels there. So I reckon you've got a little bit of spare electricity to use and to charge those electrostatically, you don't need a whole bunch of electricity. There's more than enough being generated by the solar panels. I think that is absolutely amazing. It is, isn't it? And yeah, it's fascinating. one less excuse. <laughs> I don't know that you'd put them on your roof. I don't know that you'd go the extra expense and trouble. Maybe not, solar panels maybe not next week, but maybe the, the technology becomes more ready, readily available. Yeah, for, you might be right. And, and I think the thing is on your roof, you probably haven't got the same amount of dust around as you have in the desert. So you're probably getting less dust built up on your roof, but it's also a bit easier to get up on your roof or get someone that is happy jumping up on a roof and you've got water. Most houses have mm. got water on them, so you've probably got the ability to hose them down pretty easily. So it's a it's a very weak excuse that someone's coming up with. We'll, <laughs> we'll see how we go nevertheless. Yeah, indeed. Yeah. This next story comes with its own disclaimer. I cannot think of anything worse. Indeed, I would prefer to be poked in the eye with a red-hot stick. Apparently, tickling is a good stress reliever, but not for everybody, as my wife discovered in the early days of our relationship, and someone cannot be held responsible for the involuntary actions that result from a tickling episode, regardless of how playful it was intended to be. Look, I'll cut to the chase, people. Today... You can buy an automatic foot tickling machine. Yay. Matthew, what else is there on eBay in the line of medieval torture devices? Can you think of anything worse? I cannot. (laughs) No. No. My father used to tickle our feet and all my siblings there, and it was torture. And the reflex action means the tickler gets punched in the head or something. (laughs) I I still am apologising for incidences of 20 years ago. But um, you just have no – there's no option. I lose – Complete control. My wife, when I told her this story, 
just thought this was the worst torture that mm. anyone could come up with. You've got the secret code to launch nuclear missiles. I'm not giving it to you. I'll tick your feet. Here we go. Okay, 725839. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, this, this device that they've come up with, it was actually created by some New Zealand researchers, is, get ready for this, designed to reduce our stress, James. Mm. So they first of all came up with a tickling device. So I think it creates more stress, it but does. anyway. <laughs> it does. That's, that <laughs> yeah. was exactly my thought. So you put on a shoe-like device, but inside the sole of the shoe, they've got some little pads that will actually generate just some little circles around different spots of your feet. The first thing they want to find out is which part of your foot gives you the best or worst, I'm not sure which it is, response to being tickled. And they actually found there was a difference between male and female. I don't think the sample space was large enough to make it a comprehensive difference, but apparently females are a bit more ticklish down the middle of the feet, whereas males a little bit towards the top of the foot, they were a bit more ticklish. And they had some tickle scores, people didn't say how ticklish they were at those I don't want to give too much away, but I'm ticklish all over the foot. Right. Right, okay, (laughs) keep going. I'll keep that in mind. (laughs) So they tried these different things, and then they said... What they found was people were involuntarily laughing, not punching people on the head. I don't think that came as part of the experimentation. So to reduce stress, they thought that this could be a great invention going forward where, first of all, you find out where you're the most ticklish, then you put the the shoe on and you lay back on the couch and it starts tickling you, you start laughing, can't control it, Maybe you get into some hysterical laughter and away you go. Is there an emergency button? Because (laughs) (laughs) there needs to be a big red button somewhere nearby. Right, okay. Now, here's the thing that would scare me more than anything else. The batteries that come with it can give you 60 minutes of continuous tickling. (laughs) That's the medieval torture. Right. I'd be ready to give up my children after six years of tickling. <laughs> uh, so it, apparently it might have an evolutionary role. Back in the days of yore, the whole concept of tickling your feet had an evolutionary role in social interaction and bonding. So I don't know how. So here's the thing. My wife has asked me to tickle her feet in the past. <laughs> so she likes it, but I, yeah, and she doesn't understand why I react the way I oh, do. But, d- um, d- I'm the same as you. I just think oh, it sounds terrible. In no. fact, when I saw my wife, she's had shivers down her spine <laughs> thinking of this thing that she would put on her foot that would tickle her and stop after 60 minutes or whatever yeah, It probably stems it. from having older siblings that probably, you know, attacked us when we were very young. It may Tickling until uh, we couldn't breathe and, uh, yeah, all that sort of nasty memory. Uh, yeah. It's all coming back to me now. So keep your mind out for that. It might be something you buy for a loved one or mm, a hated one a at hated Christmas one. or yeah. something. Who knows what? But this is where we're going. Maybe we're getting to the point where researchers are really struggling with things to find, really struggling with experiments, innovation, that whole concept of innovation again. But the tickle shoe is on its way soon, James, straight out of New Zealand. I'm not one for massages either, but I know that I feel good after a massage, right? So during the massage, I'm not real good for it. So maybe after a 60-minute tickle, (laughs) I feel great because... Because it's just that torture. I've survived that torture. I reckon I'd have an empty so bladder relaxed. after 60 minutes of tickling. So. <laughs> oh, goodness. Yeah. Well, I'm still registering my protest, my protest on that one. So. No, I'm with you. I'm all there with you. Believe you me. And the fun police have struck again, folks. If you're enjoying your Netflix courtesy of a mate who has shelled out and offered you a spare profile, then you better crank up the binge-watching pronto because the salad days are about to come to an end. Netflix is set to crack down on password sharing. Matt, the gig's up. It was fun while it lasted. 
I love the line that Netflix give us. They say they're cracking down on password sharing because, and I quote, it's impacting our ability to invest in great new TV <laughs> and films. So they're doing it for the better for us. Oh, it's for you relief. and I, James. It's for you and I to improve oh, the quality. You. So thank you Netflix. translate that and it's saying we're not making enough money mm. from our Netflix subscriptions, which means we can't go and invest in these great new TV and films. So therefore, if we make more money, we're not going to give that to the shareholders. We're not going to do any extra bonuses for our executives. We're just going to invest it all in great new TV and mm. film. So that sounds very, very noble of Netflix. Yeah, so thank you, Netflix. I'm there with them. So in three countries, Peru, Costa Rica, and Chile – they're going to start this trial of new product innovation of not allowing you to have password sharing amongst users. And so they've got some new technology they're going to introduce. In the past, you've had the ability in a household to have multiple users on there. So you've got your Netflix account and you can have a different Netflix account that's got extra subscribers on the account, but only if you read the terms and conditions, only to be used in the same household. So you and I can live together. You've got your preferences. I've got my preferences. When I sign in, that's fine. There's all my preferences there. You sign in, there's your preferences. Mm. We didn't have to pay two completely separate Netflix subscriptions. And that made sense? It makes sense until you move to another household and then you go, I'll just keep using that same account. Or what happens more regularly is that you move to another household and just say, you know what, I'm okay with the same shows that Matt watches. So yeah. <laughs> we'll just keep using the same account. Now they introduce some two-factor authentication, which made it a bit trickier then. Sometimes you sign in, I get a text message, you ring me, Matt, what's the code that came through? I'm just signing in, then I give you the code and everything's okay. This is all hypothetical, of course, folks. We don't really do this. James and I do not <laughs> password share or don't use the same Netflix accounts, but that's the sort of concept that they're trying to crack down on because there were some surveys done recently about Netflix and how many people are sharing, and it was an incredible number of people that were just using one Netflix account for the whole family, and they lived mm. all across the nation all across the world, who knows what. So this is the concept now. They're going to trial it in three different markets. They're going to see how that goes from a trial perspective. I don't know what will tell them whether they've been successful or whether it's a failure after those trials, but I dare say if the technology works and they can get more people to sign up accounts, then they'll probably say that's a success and away they go. Now, if some people say, well, that's it. I'm not going to use Netflix anymore. There's a whole bunch of other streaming services. I'll use those instead and they weren't getting money from those people anyway, mm. then there's probably no disadvantage for Netflix because if they were just smooching off someone else's account and then they're saying, well, I'm going to fold my arms and not use Netflix, then there's, Netflix... There's no loss. No loss to Netflix. If they, In fact, there may be a gain there because if you've got fewer people streaming, the back-end server infrastructure that Netflix needs probably doesn't need to be quite as robust. They don't need to serve quite so many shows and movies at the same time. So there may be a win there for Netflix. But I think... You're really seeing a focus on the profitability. They've really got us all in now. Everyone loves certain shows there. Everyone wants to see the next season, make sure they're following the current season. And then it's a way of just turning up the dial a little bit. We've even seen that in Australia. Our prices jumped from $15.99 to $16.99 a month. Their premium pr plan went up by $3 from $19.99 to $22.99. So that was last November. A few prices went up. Now, obviously, in November, we were still semi-locked down in a lot of places, so that was a time to put up prices when we had no choice but to sit home and watch Netflix shows. I don't know if they lost many subscribers in that. Probably not. A dollar here, a dollar there. It's like the frog in the boiling water that slowly turned up, isn't it? Yeah. You just don't notice that dollar here, dollar there. Next thing you know, 
I thought it used to be 10 bucks a month for Netflix. When did it go to 20? How did that happen? So it just yeah. goes up incrementally. So just keep an eye on this. I don't know where it will go next, but I dare say it will get much tighter as we go forward. Don't forget that free-to-air television still exists as well, folks, too. <laughs> free-to-air? What's yeah. that? Hey, I still watch free-to-air. <laughs> well, my dad used to say, I used to get frustrated with the ads when, when I was young and you'd watch, we only had one commercial channel. Yeah, CBN, I remember that. Yep. CBN 8CWN6, I think it was called, and we had ABC, which was the broadcast, the national broadcast, no ads on ABC. And so you'd be watching ABC, oh, it's great, no ads. You'd turn over to the commercial channel, oh, Dad, these ads, mm. what a waste of time. He said, no, no, son, those ads are what allows you to sit here and watch it for free. And I'd go, okay, I can live with that then. So yeah. the ads obviously pay for that. So free to wear, great, has ads, but they're paying for it all. You don't have to pay $15 a month mm. for that. But even when pay TV came along, I remember the excitement around pay TV, you pay a monthly fee so you don't have to have ads. Oh, that's great. But then ads came along. So yeah. they seem to be double dipping there somewhere. If you're going to have ads on there, doesn't that pay for the content? So I don't need to pay for pay TV. But no, that doesn't seem to work like that. So that seems a bit unfair. I just feel like we're shelling out now for something that we used to get for free anyway. Yeah. Anyway. Here's one for the chronic insomniacs. Are you sick of seeing 3am? Me too. Not keen on popping pills to get you through the night? Me too. Here's an, a new idea to get you off to the land of wink and blink and a nod. There's new evidence that the sleep switch in your body, oh, sorry, the sleep switch for our bodies is our body temperature. Matt, what's this about? It sounds interesting, doesn't it? There was a Harvard study that found participants fell asleep faster, 6.2 minutes. I don't actually know if I've ever timed how long it takes me to go to sleep, but anyway, 6.2 minutes in this Harvard study when their body temperature was at its lowest. So when your body mm. temperature dropped to about 36.5 degrees in this Harvard study, then they fell asleep quicker. If their body temperature was warmer, 37 to 37.5 degrees, then it took about 20 minutes to fall asleep. I don't know how many participants were in this particular study. I'm assuming it's got the name Harvard there, so it was a reasonable sample size. So the logic seems to be, if your body temperature starts to drop, that's your body getting ready to go to sleep. Mm. Now, there was one particular woman who was a scientist and she had a traumatic experience and got to the stage where she was really struggling to get to sleep. So her body temperature wasn't dropping around the time she was trying to go to sleep. So she created more or less a sleep blanket that you actually put under the bed so when she lay down, it actually dropped her body temperature to right. almost trick her body wow. into saying... Oh, your body temperature is dropping. There's a change there, so it's time for you to go to sleep. But then they did further experimentation, and they found some people like their body temperature to go up. And in this particular experiment, she found that her husband liked the opposite to her. So she wow. actually invented these sleep blankets that could be tailored to an individual bedside. So you sleep in a double bed with your partner. On one temperature on one side, you can change the temperature to go down, for example, if that's what suits your body clock. Other side, it can go up a little bit. Bottom line is, if you work out what your body likes to do to trigger you into going to sleep, you change that temperature, you get into bed, you lay there, and they guarantee in this that you'll be asleep within 30 minutes. Now, 30 minutes seems like a long time to me. I don't know mm. that I spend 30 minutes getting to sleep, but I normally go to bed when I'm exhausted, so it's not a long time well, to They reckon to sleep. if you're going to sleep, 
in less than five minutes, then you're too tired. <laughs> well, that's me. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, the, so the the um, what is it? The 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 good window, the the great window, is between five minutes and I think fifteen minutes. I thought, yeah, yeah. Well, apparently it's about thirty three percent of Aussies who have trouble going to sleep, and so this is where they might be looking at this. But they also had some other surveys that said, what do you do for those thirty three percent that are struggling to go to sleep? What do you do? to try and go to sleep. And I found some of the methods quite fascinating. 61% of those people are having sex. Now, <laughs> I think that's quite interesting. You go to the bed and you say to your darling partner, oh, having so much trouble going to sleep. I've got a solution, darling. Yep. <laughs> it's the only solution I can think of. Le so, petite mort, I think they call it. <laughs> so yeah. 61% said that was a solution. I don't know if they you know, got their partner participating in that experiment on a long-term basis. I'm not sure how much experimentation was done with that. But 30%, for example, sprayed lavender on their pillows. 21% started listening to radio. So there's a whole range of things. You can also start listening to various... We get ambient sounds. We, we put yeah. on like rain um, from, you know, just on our phones. Yeah. We play our rain. Yep. Yeah, that works very yeah. well. Yeah. But but the temperature apparently is one that's actually got... I'm not sure how much science is behind the sex one, but you know, I'm, I'm happy to participate in a study if that's what's needed. <laughs> <laughs> but certainly some of the things that are there really... The number one thing seems to be that body temperature. So if you want to change that... and Again, it would make sense that your body temperature drops, your heart rate drops, your metabolism drops, everything kind of drops, your, your body's going into, excuse the pun, into sleep mode. So you'd think that everything would drop, but it, it is quite interesting that some people go up the other way. But I think that change in body temperature seems to be the only thing that's got some scientific basis. So to do that, have something on your bed that actually gives you that feeling that your body temperature is changing and trick it. And it's, I think it's the old fake it until you make it. Yeah. Your, your body's not doing it naturally which may be while you're laying there for so long waiting for something to happen, but if you can make the body or the bed well, a different th- those temperature. Those little tricks are behind all those sleep remedies. Absolutely yeah. right, yeah, that's right. So anyway, it's interesting. I don't know how commercially available some of these products are, but it's worth looking up if you are having trouble going to sleep, looking up, just go and Google sleep temperatures and see what products are out there available. This is fairly recent studies that have been done to give you that information, but go and Google some of that and find mm. out exactly what might work for you. But it, there's more people than I realise that are having trouble going to sleep. Something that can really grind our gears these days is a dodgy internet speed. It's 2022 and we've left patience and waiting well behind somewhere over a decade or two ago. It's 2022 and things need to be instantaneous and just a mouse click away. So Matt, when Optus and TPG couldn't deliver on their internet speed promise, they dipped into their own back pockets. Yeah, they had to, although they did self-report, Optus self-reported that over a two-year period, it failed to inform 34,000 customers, and so they issued $4.4 million worth of refunds. TPG wow. also said that it failed to inform 4,400 customers and repaid $2.1 million as a result. So the Australian Communications and Media Authority, ACMA, said that telcos must verify maximum internet speed. Now, this is all to do with the NBN, and typically NBN fibre to the node and fibre to the curb where you might have some theoretical speeds that you can gain for your internet connection. But the theoretical, again, not so much on fibre to the premises, but for the other solutions or the other connection methods I just mentioned, then typically you may or you may not get those speeds. Mm. It puts a lot of onus on the telcos, which I'm quite happy with, the fact that they've got to be able to say, yes, the theoretical speed is whatever it should be, but in your particular area, we know that you'll only get this speed. So... We're not going to allow you to connect to those high speeds. We're not going to charge you to connect to those high speeds. 
because we simply can't deliver. And it's not so much they can't deliver, it's the MBN can't deliver. But what it's doing is it's just keeping all the telcos honest. Accountable. Accountable. And ACMA is saying, if you're not going to do it, if we find you, then you're going to have to repay some money. But they may also slap a fine on them. I'm assuming that's the only reason that these companies have self-reported. I don't know they'd self-report and offer to give up six and a half million voluntarily. Just off the, the goodness of their hearts. No, yeah, I don't know that comes into their, <laughs> into their whole <laughs> psyche. But the fact that maybe the ACMA might have fined them, then that might have been enough of a reason to self-report, repay that money to some of those customers. And most of those customers... They probably don't want the money back. They'd rather the speed. They would mm. like those speeds for all sorts of reasons. So it'd be nice if they could get those speeds. And that's a long-term, that's a whole other discussion, James, about long-term replacing all that copper, all that fibre to the node, fibre to the curb, getting fibre out there in all those particular areas. Some of it might have been fixed wireless as well. The fixed wireless speeds might not have been good enough. That'd be the real solution to some of these. But at least if they're accountable, at least it might put some pressure on everyone involved in delivering those internet speeds to get Australia up from some of those lower standards. And we are dropping across the world. We've had mm. the discussion before about places like, oh, dare I say it, New Zealand that get average speeds faster than Australia. That hurts me so much to say, Goodness James. <laughs> Getting other countries around the world, we, we tend to keep slipping down, even slipping though we've got this whole... third Indian, world conditions. Well, that might be going too far, okay, but, sorry. But, but slipping down without a doubt, I'd like to think we can do much better better than what we are doing at the moment. But at least if we have got these processes in place, hopefully somewhere down the line there'll be some changes. These companies will get to the stage where not only they're giving the speeds that are accurate, but they're also getting to the point where they're putting pressure on MBN, for example, to deliver better speeds. And that's what we all want. We all want better speeds. The extra 10 bucks a month that it might have been, who cares? We want those speeds, James. Anyone on Facebook will know about this scam, and hopefully there well, you're all savvy enough to dodge it, but they still seem to do the rounds on a regular basis anyway. Matt, a short little message is still catching even clever people out. <laughs> it's good, isn't it? It's the, look what I found. Yeah. Or, have you seen this video? There's so many different varieties of it. Oh, yeah. It's just a few words, and I think that's the real cleverness. I hate saying that, James. The real cleverness in this particular scam People are curious. Yeah. You are left wanting. You want to know more information. You want to know what they found. You want to know what this video is about. Yeah. I saw one I remember that alarmed me a little bit. We've got this video about you. Yeah. And it came from a friend. Yep. And they thought, oh, hang on a second. And, and that's I, what I they do. I had to really catch myself and think, yeah, yeah, really? And that's what they do so well. If they get into someone else's account, they'll use everyone that they're linked to, everyone that's in their address book, for example, and send out messages. So if you get a, a message from me and says, look what I found, you go, oh, do you want to what Matt found? Yeah. I'll click on that link. Now, if you get sucked into that first part, then you might click on that link and go, I better have a look at that. The next thing it does is says, oh, you need to sign into your Facebook account to look at this. Oh, okay, then I'll sign on my Facebook account. And once you do that, that's when they've got you. So yeah. then they've got your details for your Facebook account so they can sign into your Facebook account, probably change your details, and then send out messages to everyone that you're friends mm. with on Facebook. So using Messenger, whatever it might be, to get that information out there. So it continues on. And we think that we're sophisticated and we know we wouldn't fall for a scam. Someone says, I've got a check waiting for you, James, from a deceased various <laughs> person that you might know or be related to or whatever. Oh, I'm onto that one. I'm but, all over that. 
But ones like this, the shorter ones, this seems to be the current sort of concept going the rounds now. And they can catch you like in a weak moment too. You might be very tired or you might have had um, a, a big day and you're not really thinking deeply yeah. and you just see this message that's come from a personal friend. Yep. And it seems vague enough but specific enough um, for you to just to loosely click on it. Yeah. Um, yeah. My you feel like saying these days, but I know that I've got friends and family that have done the same thing. Yeah, and you feel like someone, someone sends you a message that says, are you in this video? You feel like saying, just tell me about the video. Don't yeah. go and ask me to click on a link. Yeah. And you do get it from friends sometimes who say, oh, I'll go and look at this great film clip. And you think, oh, just tell me what's in it. I don't want to go yeah. and watch this whole thing because at minute 17.15, <laughs> that's where the bit is. You just yeah. tell me about it. and. Yeah. Or tell me to look at that particular part of it, whatever. But, yeah, it's just that little teaser, that little thing that just makes you curious, makes you interested. What have you got? What have you found? Where's this whole video from? All sorts of things, especially if it's a friend from yesteryear, a friend that you might yeah. have seen for a while, a friend, an old school friend, an old university friend. Oh, I wonder what they found. I might have found some old footage of us doing something together back at school. Oh, that would be great to have a look at that. But you, you kind of you have this almost pride factor. I'm too smart to get sucked in by a scam. I'm not naive and gullible like some of those people out there are, those ones that get sucked in. But it's just so easy. And these people, I hate saying it again and again, but they're very clever. They're very clever with their psychology. They're almost a social psychologist in overdrive. So they come up with a whole range of different things to really get you. Mm. And next thing you know, before you know it, you've typed something in and you've gone, why did I put my details in there? Oh, exactly. how could I fall for that? So we lost $323 million in wow. scams last year. And again, as we've talked about before, that's the reported scams. We don't know about the unreported scams because they're kind of unreported. So that's $323 million in Australia last year alone. People in the 65-year and over bracket represented $81 million of those losses. But that still leaves a lot for the rest of the age groups out there. So it's not just older people that get sucked in with these scams. It's everyone across society. And... Let's face it, if it's a really good video, that person's probably going to contact you again later and say, did you watch the video? Yeah, yeah because I sent right. it to you. Do you yeah, really, just spot they on. they'll ask you a little bit more about it. That's right. That's when I'll click on it. <laughs> That's right. Or tell me about it. What's in yeah. there? What's so interesting in there? Just yeah, more details. But as soon as it says, with any of those ones, the, the advice I would say to people is obviously be vigilant about it, but clicking on something is not the end of the world. It's when you start to type in your details. So clicking on a link can be bad, so I'm not encouraging that. But any time it says type in details, when you, they want you to type in your password, when they want any of your details, that's when you run a million miles. And that's it for another week, folks. I'll, I'd say get on your bikes, but that's a phrase that's still a bit raw for some of us. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Matthew, I'd also wish you a restful week, but knowing you, there's 0% chance of that happening. <laughs> Thank you. Maybe I'll just rest a little bit, not on a bike. <laughs> so I'll just bid you a productive week. Thank you. That's Thank you. I'm James Eddy, and it's been a delight bringing you Tech Talk for another week. Don't forget to like and subscribe. And we hope to catch you again in another week's time.